we got to get further upstream, right? Like I mentioned back to the recruiter's office, but really if we look at it, obviously our whole society is plagued by being sedentary and a lack of physicality. So it, it happens well before they ever even walk into that recruiter's office. You know, I remember people saying like, oh, do I really need to deadlift this amount? And I would literally say, yeah, your mom should be able to deadlift that amount just to walk around, just to earn the right to walk around this planet. You should have some base level of strength. We're not asking for a lot here. Hey guys, welcome to the Mops Most Podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Drew. And on this episode, we are going to be talking to Nate Palin about a possibly overused term, tactical athletes, and whether that word really has any meaning, whether it's valuable, whether it's an effective way to talk about tactical professionals. And Nate is a big name in the tactical strength coach industry, so we we're pretty pumped to have him on. He previously was with the NSCA in the early days of the TSAC facilitator course for folks who are familiar with that was an army ranger is now working in the private sector. So he's been around the, the block in terms of tactical strength and conditioning. So enjoy. One of my go-to things is moderation in all things, including moderation, which means sometimes you got to throw moderation out the window. And this is a little bit, this is kind of one of those throw moderation out the window weeks. I'm just trying to like keep things on the rails. That sounds like a poster you'd buy at Hobby Lobby, to be honest with you. <laughs> if it's not, it will be. And I'm sure there's going to be a cat involved somehow. Blessed. Blessed. <laughs> All right. I guess that's, uh, that's the next iteration of, of Mops and Moes is creating Hobby Lobby posters that people can hang up in their like unit areas and stuff well you know as well as i do that the engagement would be through the freaking roof it's probably true i've like consistently the like fewer words in the post the more successful it is like if people have to read a thing or like think about an idea it's it's falling apart it's not going well that's why all my posts have poor engagement because i write captions that are too long and then alex just cuts them all apart and puts them up yeah, but the, those of us that actually enjoy some depth of content appreciate it. It's like bu the building the elite stuff. I love the stuff that they post. And it's refreshing to me when someone else takes the time to repost it because it's like, oh, somebody actually read that and values that. Yeah, it's a good litmus. It's a shit line. It's a shit product line for Hobby Lobby, but it's solid for, <laughs> for us. I think I can now, with like the Instagram update, I think I can hide the like count on posts. And I might do that because the posts I'm most proud of, like the ones that I think are the best content, how are the ones with the least engagement? It's really interesting. Interesting. <laughs> that, that way they're all equal. Yeah. Because it's the ones, it's stuff that makes people angry that gets the most engagement. It's like, it's, as long as you can like tick people off a little bit and get some fights started, that's how you get engagement. I know. I was like, stop polarizing the people, Alex. <laughs> I know what you're doing. <laughs> Let's introduce the third voice. Oh, yeah. Nobody knows who this is. Nate Palin is kind of an OG in the tactical strength and conditioning space. Um, been around for a minute, built a lot of what like TSAC is today, 
um, has bounced around the space a little bit, did some stuff with NSCA, did some stuff with FitOps, did some stuff with Group, did his own time in the Army, and is a much smarter guy on tactical strength and conditioning than certainly I am. I don't know, Drew's pretty smart. I don't know about that. I, I always say my only actual superpower is my network. Two of those folks being in this room right now. So if anything smart needs to be said, I definitely will default to the both of you. I'm more of a realistic to a fault, I think. Oh, man. I gave up the ideal a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> what is your, so run through, because I mean, I know every podcast does this and you do the whole yeah. show, but to elaborate on what Alex said. So, you, I mean, your prior service, then you got into walk from prior service into now basically in about 30 seconds. Yeah. I'll, I'll sprint then. Cause I made a lot of stops along the way. So it's, it's more like a, uh, more like a shuttle run scenario, but uh, we'll say it this way. Rangers college for marketing, hated it, dropped out after junior year, back to Rangers, got out, still didn't know what I wanted to do. Found coaching, found that coaching could be a professional option and wanted to bring it back to special ops owned my own business for a couple of years, movement project, uh, got hired on totally swinging above my pay grade, uh, in DC, spent a couple of years with the group out in DC, left there, returned back to the Pacific Northwest, reopened my own business for one year, left that for a position at first group, first group for three years, led into NSCA, NSCA for almost three years, led into fit ops, which I think I think I went to sleep, woke up, and I wasn't there anymore. And then uh, has currently led me to my my uh, position of again self-employed, um, in conjunction with my uh, business partner Vernon Griffith. Nice, the famous Vernon. The famous. So, and I won't steal anyone's thunder, but I know today the reason we wanted to talk amongst the three of us was especially early on in the Mops and Mo's podcast Odyssey is to discuss with no script whatsoever, whether or not tactical athletes, quote unquote, are athletes. And I can say that from where I have been as a strength coach working with guys, I mean, you know, talking about the athletic mindset is one thing, but Maybe this is a Western culture thing. I don't know. That's probably what we'll get into. But I, a lot of guys in the military, guys and gals, do not consider themselves athletes. And there's a question of, like, why is that? And if they are able to flip that switch and now think of themselves as professionals, what sort of benefit does that have to this idea of rolling out what we see in the military space, this, you know, this formalized strength and conditioning program? So that's sort of the framework for where we're hoping to go. But who knows? Who knows? I'd love to weigh in on that, which is, I think first, most of us jump to the term tactical athlete without ever identifying athlete by itself. So I think that's kind of the first stop along the way. And I'm not necessarily going to do that now, but that's something for us to consider. Two is as soon as you throw tactical in front of it, now that becomes a modifying term. So in other words, athlete in its purest sense doesn't need to necessarily stand on its own anymore because it's been modified by the word tactical, uh, much in the same way of something like a mathlete, right? So if we look at what, what makes somebody just a student who does math versus somebody who's a mathlete, you know, and I don't know necessarily what that difference is, but math would be the, the, 
sort of modifying term in that scenario. So you nailed it, in my opinion, when you said trying to get folks to get on board with the idea of being a professional. And I think it's not that we're trying to have them be a professional athlete, but the commonality is that athletes think of all of these different factors and all these strings that they have to pull in order to be the best version of themselves to be competitive in their professional space. And so I think term athlete aside, I love the term professional because that says, okay, as a professional, there are certain characteristics that I should probably value because I value those characteristics. Maybe I should make a conscious effort to develop them. And maybe that conscious effort leads me toward an evidence-based way to do so. So much in the same that like, is somebody who shoots pool and makes money? Are they a professional athlete? Again, define, I guess, athlete. Does being an athlete mean you actually have to be athletic or does it mean that you're trying to professionalize your craft? I don't necessarily have the answer to that, but what I will say is that person who shoots pool isn't just hanging out in pool halls and happens to be good at it. There's somebody who's actually putting a conscious effort into developing that. Now, same token, the physical component is going to be considerably less important, although not a non-factor in something like shooting pool, just like in something like uh, being in the intelligence portion of the military as compared to, say, somebody that plays football slash somebody who's in the infantry. So there's varying degrees of the importance of physicality as a component of that professionalization. Hopefully that made sense. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to like check out a little bit because it sounds like semantics, but I think the important part is questioning how the terms we use affect the way we behave and the kinds of things we do and the resources we put behind it and things like that. Yes. And I think I think that's why the tactical athlete term has been popular. And that's the same reason the human performance optimization term has been popular is that things like those help people understand what we're trying to do. And then I think there's a pitfall there in that depending on the kind of unit you're working with, approaching it with a tactical athlete mindset might lead a new coach to make some assumptions about the kind of baseline level of fitness and movement competency and things like that, that they can expect walking into an organization of tactical professionals. And like, when I say the type of unit, people are going to think, I mean, like combat arms versus not combat arms or conventional versus elite. But even if you walk into some like fairly elite units, you're going to see some serious issues with movement that a coach might not expect to need to deal with upfront when they start thinking about the term tactical athlete. I know I ran into it first in a big way. You, you talked about the Intel community. I came out of the Intel community. I have realistic expectations about the fitness levels of soldiers and conventional assignments, but I got to the master fitness trainer course. And I know like one of the first tasks was like, Hey, I design a strength training circuit for the next class to go through. And we put it together and we put an exercise, we put single leg RDLs in the strength training circuit. And that was a mistake. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't think that was an unreasonable ask. I was thinking like the kind of people that come to this course are into this stuff. They've done it before. It shouldn't be new. It's not a big deal, but just, just something as simple as balancing on one leg was a huge ask for a majority of the course. And we had to like essentially pause the thing and like dial back and explain some regressions and like a good kickstand position to use if you can't balance at all. And, that's, that's something that I think coaches need to understand. And it's a potential pitfall of the tactical athlete term, 
but then there's some potential utility too of getting tactical professionals to care about how they take care of their body and how they take care of their health to optimize performance like an athlete would. So it's just making sure we keep it in perspective. Yeah. I think part of what you're doing is, is, you know, prior to coaches, especially in the tactical setting, most tactical professionals defined their fitness on their own terms and in their own terms. And so the people who come to master fitness trainer, for example, are probably hopefully people who are valuing fitness, but what that fitness actually means is specific to them. So you probably have some bodybuilders show up. You probably have some O-course racers show up, maybe a few actual athletes, maybe some folks who are just love to grind and, and crush, you know, the PT test or something along those lines. And so there was no real definition of what it meant to be fit. The strongest ones that existed were either what's popular in society um, or the APFT and, and how that defines things. And so if those are your two kind of arenas where the definition of fitness is coming from, you're certainly, once you think of it that way, you're no longer surprised at kind of the lack of quote athleticism or things like single leg work for folks coming through the door. And of course, this is a paradigm too, that's also shifting even in general population, right? Like now the best coaches in general pop are training general population like athletes in a very similar way, because we all need kind of the, because what are we really doing? We're training like humans. Yeah. I think not to quote you to you, but I think you're the one who said, Ooh, I like this already. Conventional military might be more gen pop than gen pop. Um, Cause like when you, when you're dealing with a kind of general population people that end up working with a trainer or a coach or something like that, there's a lot of selection bias that goes into that. Um, when you're working with the military, you're working with whoever's there. Right. Um, and they, they come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some really value fitness, some, played high school varsity athletics or division one college athletics or whatever, all the way down to somebody who like had to lose a hundred pounds to be eligible to enlist. Right. It, there's a whole huge realm there. And I think um, you brought that up when we were talking about it, because as we're hiring professionals to work with the military, the requirements that are being set out for these job descriptions are very much tailored towards people that are working with athletes either at the collegiate or professional level. And that's great. And that has an awesome reputation. And those guys have a ton of knowledge, but it might be worth opening the aperture a little bit to people who have more gen pop experience, because that might be just as, if not more applicable to the population we're working with. And that's kind of at the heart of the whole tactical athletes. Is it a good term thing? Just sitting here listening, I'm thinking of conversations I've had with with guys, I mean, I would call them tactical athletes, granted on the, on the soft side, but like, if you just pull the room, you know, what, what is an athlete? I think more often than not, you're going to get football player. You're going to get agility ladder. You're going to get money. You're going to get game. I'm just thinking of like buzzwords, you know, score competition, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I think, you know, Nate sort of nailed it as sort of like the professionalism concept. I just, I guess what I'm kind of getting at is I wonder if there's goodness in even having that athlete nomenclature or, you know, does that add to the conversation around why you need to, for example, train professionally in the gym versus just do whatever you want. Does it add to the conversation around, you know, the, you know, the classic cliche, like it's what it's the 23 hours outside of the gym that you want to focus on. I just, I wonder if there's, 
if there's goodness in having that term and if there's goodness in from a senior leadership perspective, maybe messaging that more broadly, this idea that like, you know, enlisting or commissioning into the military is equivalent to taking on the mantle of a professional athlete and then making decisions, you know, top down in that sense. I don't know if there's like a question or a discussion point there, but it's just, I, I go back to conversations I've had with dudes where they legitimately don't consider themselves an athlete because one, it's not messaged to them, but then two, the idea of what actually makes a quote unquote athlete is very far removed from the combat environment. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, that's, that's part of even being a, a coach or a human performance professional in the tactical setting is the marketing component, which means you're going to have to draw those comparisons for them because they're not going to draw them naturally. And I mean, I think you kind of nailed it because you mentioned both leadership and you mentioned kind of the guys on the ground and like that message that you're delivering needs to go to everything from senior to lower level leadership to the folks who are new, like the, the reframing of the way they think about themselves needs to go all the way back to, you know, literally first days of basic training, if not beforehand. And part of that is doing a good job of crafting a message of what it means to be a quote tactical athlete, if that is the term used. Cause I think you can draw a lot of great comparisons that will hammer that point home. But the earlier you get to them and the more consistent you deliver that same message, the better. The other thing I will say is we've shot ourselves in the foot a little bit. And I, I say we, but I didn't come from, I came from gem pop, not pro sport coaches who come from sport definitely shot themselves in the foot a little bit because early on they brought a lot of value. One movement. Absolutely. Alex kind of nailed that earlier Two, strength and power. So kind of these three things that were never really touched before are suddenly being introduced. And because of that, you've got someone who's so far on the other end of the spectrum, the aerobic capacity, muscular endurance end of the spectrum that you ended up landing in the middle. And of course, as tends to happen, the pendulum starts to swing a little bit, maybe too far. But the other thing is that those coaches, because they had such a good sell with things like strength power, they also started to sell things like agility. The problem is, they sell them like they're selling it to, you know, a, an operator. So it's always like, hey, think of your, you like when you enter the room, this, and when you do this, this, and it's like you're trying to draw this direct comparison where instead you have to look at more of like, okay, what are the underlying components of what's being trained through something like agility and how do they actually apply to you in your space um, versus trying to make them equal because they're just not. Um, and so I think that's a little bit of it too, is some of the, because of some early success, we might've gone a little bit overboard in drawing these straight comparisons to the on the field athlete, where if we take a step back, kind of like you were before with the idea of like, Hey, athletes pay attention to more than just the one hour of training athletes professionalize their craft. And there's obviously a, as much of a cognitive component as there is a physical component. And as soon as you start to talk about it in that way, that's, I think, going to resonate and it's going to resonate with all MOSs. I think you talked about all MOSs and you, you alluded to it a couple of times there, but I think it's just as important to communicate to coaches coming into the tactical arena, what they should expect, right? Because for most of them, it's fairly easy to picture like special operations or infantry and still like decently within reach to picture like artillery or armor, or military police or things like that. Yep. But I know it was really eye-opening to me to get to the MFT course because prior to that, I had only served in brigade combat teams, like normal units organized around maneuver elements. 
And then I get there and I, I have to like, kind of realize and adjust my aperture to how big the, the military really is and how many different jobs there are and how diverse the population is. Cause now I've got a tuba player and a respiratory technician <laughs> and like, like just all sorts of different specialties from across the spectrum. And, and honestly, it doesn't necessarily align with expectations, right? Like you'll have infantry guys come through who don't know that much about strength and conditioning and fitness and consistently the musicians were some of the most knowledgeable best master fitness trainers that came through my course and just like getting people prepared for the diversity and the differences and the levels of physical demand and how to talk to different jobs within the military because you can't use that same like the classic picture clearing a room thing isn't going to work if you're talking to somebody who knows they're never going to do that yeah so like just being able to get a little bit more realistic about who you're working with and what their goals are is going to be pretty important. Do you think, so this is something I think about because again, like working with a non-combat arms brigade, do you think that you almost need to look beyond the MOS and just build the robustness of the human as a whole? And I don't necessarily mean that from like a fuzzy sense. I mean that from like an actual, you know, and we talk to our soldiers about this, like at the end of the day, if it got so bad, like if shit hit the fan so bad, you as a military member are going to go and try to, you know, go into combat. And yes, that's hypothetical and it's an extreme, but whatever. I just, one thing that I sort of wrestle with, especially with my staff is like, if you train specifically to the MOS, does that limit you in terms of your intervention? Or do you look beyond that and instead say, how do we make the most robust human possible so that whatever the MOS is, whatever the mission set is, you're capable of handling the demand? Yeah, I don't wanna get, I know a lot of the audience here is army. So it's, I think it's okay to speak mostly in army and we all have an army background here, but it's just more comfortable for me. And there was this, like, I think regardless of the MOS, if they're wearing the uniform, they went through basic combat training for a reason, right? If they, if they weren't in a position where the army was expecting that a scenario could result in them deploying to combat, it would have been cheaper to hire them as a civilian or a contractor and not owe them a ton of benefits and access to all these resources and things like that. It is expensive to turn a civilian into a soldier and the army made that decision based on thinking that person needs to be prepared for combat. That is the fundamental reason you would put someone in uniform. Um, and I talked about it a little bit at TSAC, but like it was like just your brigade's a bunch of medical specialists, Drew. And I, I had one come, she didn't come through when I was teaching. She came through one of the ACFT classes. One of my buddies was teaching, but she had worked in a hospital for her whole career. They did deploy to Afghanistan. They ended up setting up a clinic to treat the local populace. Like they had some security from an infantry unit, but they were still attacked. And the, the doctor she reported to was shot in the abdomen, right? He goes down, he's not behind cover. She has to run out from cover and needs to move him like 20-ish yards to get him behind cover. Runs out, grabs his, him by the body armor and tries as hard as she can to move him. He doesn't move. She's just not strong enough right? It was never a part of her job. She trained for the APFT. She did plenty of push-ups and sit-ups and jogging and stuff, but there'd been no reason for her to strain, train strength specific to her MOS. But now all of a sudden she finds herself in the exact scenario why she was sent to basic combat training because she's still a soldier and still needs to go to combat and she can't 
do the physical baseline thing of getting him behind cover. She, she's knowledgeable enough from her work to provide care. She's a technical expert in her craft, but it took like two or three tries. She tried to drag him. She couldn't do it. He didn't make it. Yeah. Well, we had, I mean, again, not like on the medical side, we have a team of vets, which, you know, you wouldn't even really know that they exist in the army. And we have had conversations literally in the past two weeks with their command about why do I need to do X, Y, Z from a training perspective? I'm just a vet. And the thing I tell my strength coaches to tell them is like, you're not just a vet. You are an army vet. Like you are a soldier who is a vet. And I think you can probably extrapolate that across the board to the non-combat arms, but it sort of goes back to what we were hitting on initially, which is if it's messaged from the outset that this is an athletic endeavor that you are undertaking, this is a professional craft that you're undertaking that includes, because I mean, any army, Navy, Air Force, whatever, motivational t-shirt, it's like people first, physical fitness, yada, 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 yada. But that's the first thing that will fall off because I don't think it's messaged strongly enough that no shit, you are a a quote unquote tactical athlete, warrior athlete, whatever you want to call it. I, I think just that mental shift doesn't seem like much, but it makes a huge difference when you look at sort of the second and third order effects. Just to make sure everybody understands vet as in veterinarian. veterinarian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, you have a qualifying term, right? Like Drew said, you have army vet. So like now what does it mean to be army? I'll, I'll say this, like what is, what is by far I test alone, the fittest force which Marines. One? Yeah. hundred percent. And the reason is because Marines look at themselves as a soldier. They know at the end of the day, they still are a effing Marine. Right. And like, they take pride in that. So there's a little bit of a culture of physicality that comes from that. And so I think that's exactly what Drew's saying. It's like that shift in mindset that start thinking about yourself as, you know, a, a physical specimen of sorts or as a soldier, hell, just that, that, qualifier alone should be enough for people to start investing in, in physical training. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, we talk about it all the time, but the, the Marines, whether or not they're like specific tests or specific policies or anything are making the difference, they've done a good job and it comes from a little bit being a smaller force and like more task specific, but they've built a really good culture around fitness in the Marine Corps. And that's something we can definitely learn from. And like you said, it comes back to messaging and how they see themselves and what being a professional in that community Mm -hmm. means. Well, even in something like Rangers, right? So like where I came from, if coaches never arrived there, but suddenly the ACFT was put in front of them as a, hey, this is the new event, it would have taken them all of three months probably for damn near everybody in the unit to pass, even without coaching. Why? Because they value physicality they pride themselves on it and there's also a level of accountability so in other words hey if you're not willing to do the work that it takes or if you're not willing to value physicality that's fine there's another unit for you down the road see yourself out do you think well i mean the short answer is yes in terms of difference between combat arms and non-combat arms but do you think that there is some somewhat of a hang-up between a soldier in a non-combat position or you know a maintainer in the air force versus, you know, a PJ, any service, but somewhat of a hang up between those who don't perceive themselves, like Alex said, as going into a situation that's going to require a level of physicality and those that do, because I mean, 
in as much as when I was on the soft side, guys did not necessarily consider themselves athletes They understood innately the importance of being physically fit, whether that's so you don't get, you know, body shamed by your body or whether it's because you actually do understand the connection between being strong and being effective. And I just wonder if maybe, you know, again, the dichotomy between the way that it's projected as combat arms versus non-combat arms, that leads to some discrepancy or difficulty in adopting an athletic mindset. Well, yeah, I'll say this. So, you know, I definitely was way more exposed to combat arms than, of course, in Rangers. Even if you're non-combat arms, you still have all the same assessment you have to go through. So it's kind of that quote, everybody's a Ranger. So like even our cooks have a high level of physicality. So that said, I think it's, it's totally about this, the messaging. It's about the culture and it's bred from the very beginning, probably all the way back into the recruitment office when the recruiter said something along the lines of, don't worry, you just have to get through basic training, which is easier at Fort Jackson than it is at Fort Benning because you're non-combat. Like they're already lowering expectations of physicality. And then that just continues as you go through these pipelines. And then, you know, imagine how far it probably falls by the time you get to your unit. And the, the level of person in terms of their physical abilities that's entering one MOS versus another has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Like there's definitely not this, oh, the people I went to infantry school with were physical beasts naturally, like no way in hell. Um, you know, it, it was it was just the way that we were trained, the way that we approached everything from the beginning, the way that we were told like, hey, you have to be strong enough. You have to be able to endure. So like the expectations were different. The messaging was different. And even then, even for Rangers, like, I happen to sign up with a ranger contract that there are plenty of people in my basic training who are way more physical beasts than I was who went out into big army. I bet if I caught up with them five years later, that their physicality probably would have dwindled significantly where mine continue to rise because now they get to a regular army unit that maybe doesn't value physicality as much. Whereas I'm going somewhere where I have to continue to overachieve to be, to be able to keep my spot. And so, you know, I think it's a lot less about, the person that's being put into these roles. And it's more about how it's messaged all the way back to the recruiter's office. I can literally remember, I think they call it like relax in Jackson or something like that. Maybe Alex knows, but um, like that was, that was how it was pitched, you know, the, the basic training at Fort Jackson as compared to the basic training for infantry at Fort Benning. I think it's, I think it's real. I think you kind of danced around it, but people tend to rise or fall to the level of expectation you set for them. If you set a low bar, they'll fall to that nice, comfortable low bar. If you set a high bar, they'll push themselves to achieve at that high level. And I think you, you mentioned specifically that if you're, if you're in the Rangers, everybody's a Ranger regardless of their job. And I don't think it's a mistake that that sounds an awful lot like the Marine Corps line of every Marine or rifleman regardless yep. of their job. And I think that's something the army could do to like buy into a little more of like, and this is going to sound stupid, but like every soldier is a soldier. We know what a soldier is supposed to be. When you picture it in your head, you know what it looks like and you know what the responsibilities are. We need to make sure every soldier remembers that they are in fact a soldier. And that might be kind of the value of the tactical athlete term is that like every tactical professional needs to be prepared for the the physical demands of that profession. Like even like you might be, you might find yourself in a current role where you like sit in a car a lot or sit behind a desk a lot or whatever it is, regardless of your profession, but you're in that profession 
to do the core responsibility of it. So you need to be prepared for it, whether that's dragging a hose and putting on bunker gear or whether that's chasing somebody down and tackling them or whether that's closing with and destroying the enemy. If you're, if you wear the uniform, that's why, or else you wouldn't be in the uniform. It's something Vernon and I talk about all the time. We call them basically critical and common tasks, right? And it's like, people always use the common task excuse of which is what they do the majority 99.9% of the time. And that's their reason for not challenging themselves to train physically. The problem is that critical tasks, which are that 0.1%, they might hardly ever happen, but when they do, it means the shit is probably hitting the fan and you're going to have to reach to a place that maybe you've never reached before. If you haven't trained for it, you know, we had a, commander in SF even who said like, why are we lifting all these weights when our guys 99.9% of what they do is aerobic. And I was like, cause what happens during that 0.1% if you're not strong enough to like the story you told earlier, if you're not strong enough to drag somebody out of a firefight, like you will never forgive yourself because all it would have taken was for you to invest a couple of days a week of picking up something heavy. It's literally that easy. And I think I would add to that too, because I mean, we talked about the professionalism part of it. If you do flip that switch, regardless of your job description, that you are in fact a tactical athlete, there's a lot that goes into that in terms of how you take care of yourself, sleep wise, financially, relationships, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, getting into the whole kind of holistic thing. But I mean, you go pick any random college football player, any like basketball, whatever, pick a sport, like, it's the work that those guys do outside of their sport that makes a difference when like Nate said, you're, you know, one second left of the game, throwing up a three pointer. Like it's not necessarily you being present in the gym or you, you know, training that goes into it. I think it's everything else that you've taken time to prioritize. And I see this happen with the population I work with where they get home, they take the uniform off and like it's video games, pizza and beer. And that's just the way it is. You know, as long as I can pass my APFT or ACFT or whatever the test of the day is, like I'm good to go. So I think there's a lot and we've hit on this a couple of times, but there's a lot that goes into the second, third, fourth order effects of just shifting the message around. Why are you here? What are we really training for and, and what's the supposed outcome? I think worst cases, we're all completely wrong and they don't end up getting put in a position where they have to tap into those critical tasks or do that thing. And their job is entirely sedentary. And all they get out of doing all this stuff is that they're healthier and less likely to get injured and age with better bone density and more lean muscle mass and less heart disease and less high blood pressure. And damn, like that was what a waste of time. Well, like I train, so I train so I can beat up my 10 month old daughter's future boyfriends, but hopefully I have to be, <laughs> hopefully I never have to beat up those future boyfriends, but just being big enough to scare them off is that sort of critical common task that I need to focus on. Smart, smart move. In my opinion. I mean, it, it goes back to even like, we got to get further upstream, right? Like I mentioned back to the recruiter's office, but really, if we look at it, obviously our whole society is plagued by being sedentary and a lack of physicality. So it, it happens well before they ever, even walk into that recruiter's office. You know, I remember people saying like, oh, do I really need to deadlift this amount? And I would literally say, yeah, your mom should be able to deadlift that amount just to walk around, just to earn the right to walk around this planet. Yeah. You should have some base level of strength. We're not asking for a lot here. 
Right. It's one thing CrossFit did a good job of presenting it, right? Like the, the ability to squat is the ability to get in and out of a chair unassisted or on and off of a toilet unassisted. <laughs> and the ability to deadlift is the ability to carry your groceries to the door, put them down, unlock the door and then pick them back up again. Right. These are, these are tasks that every human should be able to do to some degree. And like that, that degree varies based on the age of the person and their goals and all of that. But I think a little bit of what we're doing with the whole tactical athlete concept and the tactical strength and conditioning concept is like crawling back upstream closer to the real problem, which is that if we could address this stuff in high school or in middle school, we wouldn't need all the stuff in the military to play catch up and reteach people how to move. Like we need to, I, I had a conversation with the buddy yesterday, right? Like imagine like we, we are all, every single person walking around the planet today is the product of thousands of years of evolution and they benefit from thousands of years of collective knowledge and they have access to food from across the planet and all this stuff. Like imagine, imagine being the beneficiary of that. Like your ancestors successfully reproduced for millennia to produce your optimized, amazing genetics. And you're going to tell yourself you can't deadlift. <laughs> this is the best they could do. Yeah. You, you're you're going to tell them, like you're going to turn around and explain to them who survived in like the tundra and killed a saber tooth tiger with their bare hands that you can't deadlift 140 pounds or do a leg tuck. Come on, like just make them proud. Forget about everything else. Like you are a pretty impressive physical specimen just to be here right now. I heard, I heard something once it was something along the lines of like, if humans could fly, people wouldn't do it because they would consider it exercise. <laughs> that's, that's pretty spot on. Like I, I almost like I smile and cry at the same time. Like if I took my entire brigade and taught them how to fly, I don't think very many of them would choose to do it because it'd be like, that's yeah, too hard. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, like chickens are the only surviving dinosaurs and they chose not to fly despite the ability to do it. So maybe, maybe there's something to that. <laughs> All right, let's put a bow on this. So do we think tactical athletes are athletes in a single word? Yes or no. I'm going to vote. Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm going to vote yes as well. I think there's some important conversations around it, obviously, but I think fundamentally it provides more value than it creates problems. Right. And I think that this is probably the first in a series of conversations like this, just attacking the pros and cons and the intricacies of the whole thing, but to sort of set the tone going forward in terms of mindset shift, how you approach training, how you approach sleep, your you know relationships, blah, 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 blah. It, it would be like to Alex's point, You'd be better off accepting that than sort of fighting it. This idea that by taking the oath, you are now a athlete and everything that comes with that. Well, we don't need to go down this rabbit hole because I know you're trying to wrap it up and put a bow on it. But I guess the next conversation is, are all humans athletes? There you go. Stay tuned for the next episode with Alex by himself talking about are all humans athletes. <laughs> <laughs>